younger sister and I only wear black and gray clothes because somehow color always looks really weird to me. And I'm Autumn, the older sister. I have struggled with headaches since I was 13 years old and luckily have one today. So you'll have to forgive me if I seem a little off or my mind just freezes up in me because it's really hard to think through the pain. Yeah, and you've had a headache for like a week now, right? This is day five of this beautiful, wonderful headache I'm experiencing. <laughs> this is what that is. That sounds awful and nightmarish and... I do not envy you because my headaches usually only last for like one day and then I'm good. But I am always terrified I'm going to end up with headaches like yours because our aunt also has horrible headaches like that. I'm like, I'm just going to reach like a certain age, just like one day, just bam, massive headaches that last for a month. It's going to happen. I, I hope not. I, I know part of this headache um, is because of my anxiety. It just is. I, I am an anxious person. I stress up, I tense up, and oddly, my body and my neck doesn't like being in a singular cramp for days on end, and it punishes me. But that's just how it is. I am anxious, I get headaches, and as much as I hate it, I have to deal with them. But that does kind of bring us into our topic of the day, which is anti-hero coping skills. It's like the Batman of um, coping skills, and I am totally stoked to, to do this episode because who doesn't want to be an anti-hero, right? Does it make me an anti-hero well, if I have anti-hero coping skills or is it just the coping skills that are anti-hero? Oh, I think it's like definitely a little bit of both there. And I would say, I mean, it's even past Batman. We're not we're like, we're talking Venom. We're talking Harley Quinn. We're talking Deadpool. We're talking super anti-hero today. Not like your PC anti-hero Batman Ivy. We're going all the way. Okay. Well, I mean, I really, can I at least wear the Batman outfit? He has the coolest one. <laughs> You know, if, if you can afford it, you can wear the Batman. Yeah, I can't afford it. But it is in the colors that I always wear. It's black. <laughs> it's so true. And the old ones were black um, and gray. So it's perfect. It is my colors. I just have to save up the money. You will have to save up the money. Um, so let's let's really start talking about um, what we mean by anti-hero coping skills. And now as everybody probably out there, I mean... If you're listening to this podcast, you probably have heard the word coping skill and you probably have a vague idea of what coping skill is. And basically it's, you know, it's something you employ, um, something you decide to do or possibly even unconsciously do to help yourself deal with difficult situations. It's a skill you pop out so that you can deal with strong emotions or stressful times or whatever it might be. Now, most of the focus out there is on those positive coping skills. And that's all happy and hunky-dory. But nobody really wants to look at the negative coping skills. Nobody wants to look at these things that are like actually helping us function, even though they're negative, even though they're bad, they're what's keeping us moving forward. And so for us today, we've labeled these the anti-hero coping skills because everybody agrees they're bad. Everybody agrees they're villainous. But the reality is, is they're what help keep us functioning. So cultural focus, we're talking about coping skills. It's all about being perfectly healthy. Textbook. Everything is wonderful. You get to a certain point in your, in your progress, in your journey, and you will never do an, an unhealthy or borderline unhealthy thing ever again. You will always be able to deal with stress magically and wonderfully. And all of the self-help books and all of the memes and all the stuff that we see out there, we see a lot of the, the 
common themes for things they tell us to do that are supposed to magically fix all of our problems. But of course that doesn't work because you can't just magically fix all of your problems. You have acquired these coping skills, you developed these coping skills over the course of your lifetime to help you deal with stressful or toxic or traumatic situations. So it's, it's a journey. You can't instantly fix it just with things like positive affirmations. It is a process. So we're gonna talk about some of those common things we're told to do, like positive affirmations, you know, that I am good, I am enough, everything will be fine. I am on my journey. I am okay. What are some other ones that you can think of, Autumn? Uh, well, I like I know a lot of the positive coping skills um, that I've heard about relate to pillow violence. Like for being positive, I feel like that's really violent. But um, scream into a pillow, punch a pillow, strangle a pillow. A lot of pillow violence. That's apparently a positive coping skill out there. Um, it is not positive for the pillow. I feel very bad for the pillow. <laughs> I, I don't think there's a, I don't think there's enough attention paid to pillow violence. They are victims of abuse and we do not respect them. We should. They help us out a lot, but no, we just beat them up all the time. Well, I mean that that's another one of the positive scoping skills right there is maybe the pillow is not setting appropriate boundaries because I know that's a very big positive coping skill they put out there. You know, you need to set appropriate boundaries. Like that's something you can just magically figure out how to do overnight. Yeah. Um, another big one, self-care. Just go ahead and take care of yourself because we all have the time, money, and energy to just do that. That's awesome. I, I love how so many of these things, it's just a, a little cliche line where they're just like, just do this thing. Well, that's, that's not so easy to, to do. Like mindfulness, that's another one. That is a skill that you develop over time, being able to sit with yourself in the moment and be aware of your surroundings and just be present and be able to kind of put your worries and things on the back burner. Mindfulness sounds great, but it's, it's a process. I mean, that ties into meditation. Again, that is a process. Even people that have been doing meditation for decades will often struggle with that because it's not very human to just quiet your mind. And and that's so true. And that's why, you know, all of this focus in psychology and culture is on these positive scoping skills. And they actually are great. You know, meditation, even pillow violence, I'll give you that. Um, mindfulness, breathing exercises, taking a break, self-care. Yes, they are great and they are wonderful. And we are in no way demeaning any of them, even if we joke around about them, because they do help and they can provide these amazing benefits. But like Ivy kept saying, these are processes. These are things you must learn. And when you come into life, especially if you've had a difficult childhood, the skills you learned aren't positive. They're nowhere near mindfulness and meditation. They're nowhere near self-care. They're just what you have to do to function. And so in the meantime, when you're working towards these positive health skills, people forget to tell you about the negative ones. And they forget to tell you about how these are actually helping you function, whether a society approves or not, they are. And because they are not really approved by society, you get a lot of guilt and shame because you're deviating from being healthy. You know, like, oh, well, you're having a beer every night. That that seems a little alcoholic. Or you punched a wall. Well, that's definitely self-harm. That's not okay. And you get all this guilt and shame because your coping skill is negative. It is mentally ill. It is a symptom of your mental illness. And so you get all this societal shame. And, and then also, I feel like you also get personal shame with this as well. 
Oh yeah, I am. I am a master of the personal shame of putting myself down because it's that part of the reason why we kind of joke about all of those those positive coping mechanisms that we hear about all the time. At least part of the reason why I joke about it is almost kind of like gallows humor for me because I have been working on my mental health for such a long time and I've read so many books and I've, you know, gone through so many mental health resources and I've been to to a therapist and I've been through the whole gamut and it's on one level it's frustrating because it's like okay I, I get that that's how you're supposed to deal with things when you're healthy and that's textbook and everything but it doesn't come that easily I have all of these things I have to unlearn and all of these things that my brain is still holding on to because I still view them on some level as healthy or, or helpful, even if it's on the subconscious level. And you just hear the same things over and over again. Well, you just need to develop these skills. You just need to develop these skills. You just need to think positively. You just need to, to be positive, you know, just take deep breaths, take a walk in the forest, go ground yourself. It's like, yeah, all of those things are great but it's not always that easy. And when you have it hammered into you all the time that, well, you just do these things, you just do these things. It makes it sound like it should be so easy. And when it doesn't come easy to you and you're struggling and you have these coping skills and these coping mechanisms that you know are not the best for you and you're not at a place where you can replace them yet with something healthy or you're even conflicted about whether or not to replace them because they've served you in a certain way for so long, you start getting really down on yourself because you're like, no, it should be easy. Why can I not just do this? Or what I'm doing isn't good enough. It's not healthy enough. I should be doing that instead. And so you start beating up on yourself and you start thinking, I'm not enough. I'm not worthy. I'm so broken. I'm never going to be able to fix this. This should be easy. It seems like it comes easy to everybody else. They make it sound like it is, like it's something that you should just be able to do. And it's not, but even though those things are trying to teach you are healthy and they're good for you, you can kind of get caught in a negative feedback loop because then it starts to feel like pressure from society that like, well, why can't you just be, you know, why can't you just meditate and have that fix things? Why, why can you not just deal with your anxiety by taking a walk? It's not always that easy for everybody. It, it isn't. And the reality is, is, I mean, coping skills are for highly emotional situations. They're for highly stressful situations. And when you're in the middle of high stress and high emotion, especially in real life, it's not very often that you can just say, hey, I need a break so that I can try to use this coping skill I'm learning. It doesn't work that way. Life does not work that way. And so the reality is, is we still have to use skills that are negative or considered negative, whether those by society. And I mean, we'll get into these in more detail, but we're talking about things like anxiety, social withdrawal, anger, people pleasing, overproductivity, or possibly even substance use, or even self-harm. All of these things are negative skills. And by employing them, we are able to function. We are able to get through the situation. We are able to get through the day. Maybe it's getting out of bed. Maybe it's going to work. Maybe it's getting your pants on. Maybe it's dealing with your family. Whatever it is, these negative coping skills are helping you function in life. And that's really what we want to focus on today is maybe removing that idea of negativity from these ideas of coping skills and and reframing this as anti-hero coping skills. Sure, they may not be the best, but they get the job done. And sometimes, honestly, I'm going to say this, and I don't know if the, the psychological and the mental health world agree with me. 
these skills are okay. And sometimes they are necessary to help us live. But there is definitely a choice that needs to be made when you make them. You can't just go on being anxious or withdrawing from other people or people pleasing and just be like, oh, it's my coping skill and I'm not going to work on that. No, that's not okay. You really have to make a choice and say, okay, this is a skill. This is a behavior. This is a trait. This is a whatever you want to define it that I am using to function in life. Do I want to keep using it? Is it hurting me? Is it not? And so let's start diving into these. So first off, before we get too far, I want to say that there are some simply no-go, super bad, highly unhealthy behaviors that are coping skills, but you should not be using them, okay? So how do you know if something's just a no-go, super bad? First off, it causes significant harm to self or others. If you are getting serious significant harm, like you're ending up in the ER, you are losing relationship after relationship, you are unable to show up for work because it's actually impairing your functioning. At that point, that is so super bad. It's not really honestly a coping skill. It's actually just fucking up your life. Um, so like I would say the ultimate no-go, no matter what situation, abusiveness. If your trauma, your past, your mental illness, your symptoms, whatever, you're abusing others, you're taking that cutting passive aggressive approach, or you're actually hitting them, or you're emotionally abusing them, never okay. Doesn't matter if it makes you feel better. Doesn't matter if it makes you get through the situation. That's always a no-go. But then the rest of the no-go behaviors are really going to be dependent on you and the situation. They're, they're going to be a personal thing. And you're going to have to decide, you know, is this actually helping me function? Is this actually doing that? And then you're also going to have to say, is this hurting me so much that it's worthwhile? Um, I think a really great example for a no-go um, that I think both Ivy and I share, uh, coping skill was promiscuity. I'll, I'll openly say, you know, during my, my younger years, in my 20s, I slept around a lot more than I should. And there were affairs and there were a lot of bad things. And I was very sexually promiscuous. And this was not okay for me because what was happening was I was not taking care of myself. I was putting myself at risk for a pregnancy that I did not want. I was putting myself at risk um, for any sort of sexually transmitted diseases because I wasn't using protection. I was just sleeping around so I could feel better about myself. And did I feel better about myself? Yeah, for a few seconds but at what risk? And where did you feel about that, Ivy, on the promiscuity side of these? Why did you decide promiscuity was a no-go coping skill for you? Um, before I get into my personal experiences that with that, I do want to, you know, just make a, a disclaimer here that some people are very sexually open. They've, they're very sexually liberated. It's coming from a healthy space for them. And that is totally wonderful. We are not saying anything negative about people who are in touch with their sexuality and who feel a really deep intimate connection to themselves and their partners and have all sorts of sexual experiences of various kinds. We are not saying that is absolutely always an unhealthy thing. Um, but for Autumn and I both, it was definitely an unhealthy thing. And where where for me, I recognized that was that, yes, I was putting myself in situations where I was at risk of pregnancy and I was at risk of catching some sort of disease. And I am extremely lucky that that did not happen because there was a time in my late teens, and my early twenties, where I would have sex with almost anybody who showed an interest in me because my self-esteem was that 
low. And because I had been raised with my father making, you know, comments about how the only thing that my mom was ever good for was a good fuck. And being brought up with kind of that mentality where it's just like, oh, so a woman is only worthy and deserving of love and attention if she puts out. So I went into it with that thought. I went in with a very warped perception because I thought that my worth was entirely tied in to what I was able to do in bed, how I was able to perform. And I put so much focus on that. And I put so much focus on attracting the attention of men and being whatever it was that they wanted me to be. I did so many things that I was not comfortable with that I did not want to do. Um, and that were very emotionally and mentally damaging to me. Even immediately afterward, there would be times when I, you know, some dude would come over, we'd have sex, he would leave, and then I would go and take a shower and I would sit on the shower floor shaking and sobbing because I felt so dirty and so used. It never made me feel better about myself. I did it only because I thought this is the only thing that I am worth. My entire value as a person is inextricably linked to my sex appeal and what I am willing to do. And I put myself in a lot of very dangerous situations. I am very lucky that I am even still alive today. That's where it became really, really bad for me. And to this day, I still have a lot of issues when it comes to sex that have now carried through because of all of those things that I did when I was younger that I have a lot of shame about, all of those things that made me feel very unsafe, all of those things that gave me a warped perception of what sex is and what intimacy should be and what relationships are. I have a lot of issues now because of that. I just wanted to be accepted. I wanted to be loved. I wanted to be seen as valuable. And I went about it in all the wrong ways because I got brought up with these very false perceptions about what sexuality and, and intimacy should be. So for some people, you have a healthy relationship with sex, you're sexually liberated, you're open to all these experiences. Even if you have lots of partners, that doesn't make anything wrong or bad. But for me, it was a bad experience because I was coming at it from the wrong place and I was in a really bad headspace. And it's had long-term effects on me to this day that I'm still trying to work through. It was a behavior you were trying to use to meet a need. And it ended up having a lot of negative consequences for you. And I mean, that's part of what an anti-hero coping skill is. It's this behavior you use to meet a need in order to continue functioning, whether it's psychologically or actually realistically functioning in life. And it has negative consequences. But sometimes those consequences are so big. And the, the fallout of using that particular skill, if you want to call it that, or that particular behavior makes it damaging to the point that this actually isn't a coping skill anymore. Like Ivy said, I don't want to call it a coping skill because it became the point that it wasn't. And those are where you know if you have like, well, I have this coping skill and I think it's really helping me function or it's helping meeting this need. You really have to assess that and say, is it? Because if it's not, and if it's causing you a lot of harm, and if it's putting you in more harm's way than it's taking out of, then that's a no-go. And that's really something you're going to have to decide on your own. And with that, you know, and this is going to kind of tie into where we're going, a really big common skill that a lot of people don't want to admit to is substance abuse. 
And now I'm going to be really general and I know people are going to hate on me, but I'm going to use substance abuse across the board. And I'm talking not just, you know, your hardcore drugs, your meth, your heroin, um, whatever it is out there on the street now. I'm not, you know, up on that or alcohol abuse, but also people that use marijuana a lot or excessively or even caffeine a lot or excessively. Those are all potential coping skills to help you deal with the day, to help you deal with your emotions. And now the reality is, is some people can do this. I know people that smoke a lot of marijuana, but they have very healthy relationships. They're able to get to work on time. They don't have anything on their record, even though it's in a state where it's illegal. And so it's a coping skill because it is something they are doing to help themselves deal with a situation. And it's not necessarily positive because it's not actually fixing the thing. They're not all of a sudden working on their emotional baggage from the past. They're not changing their behaviors to help anything fix it. So it's not fixing it, but it's working for them. Can they get to work? Yes, they can. Can they maintain their relationship? Yes, they can. And possibly they can do their work better and they can maintain the relationship better because of that coping skill. And that's kind of where we're going into is there are some misconceptions and there are some definite controversial negative coping skills out there that society says, oh, these are bad no matter what. And you can never use these. And now I, I want to say right off, we are not going to condone or accept or say, hey, these are great. You should go ahead and use them. You should definitely go out and be a substance user or you should definitely self-harm. No, I am not saying that. All of these coping skills are temporary crutches to get you somewhere on your journey. And they all have the potential for harm. And you definitely want to move away from them. They're directly harmful in some manner. But just because society says, no, this is never acceptable, it's not true. Sometimes it is. And I mean, I just talked about that with substance use. And whether it's marijuana, I've even known some functioning, and that's the, the key word there, functioning alcoholics. Do they have the best relationship? No. But are they able to maintain it? Yes. Are they having the best job and the career and they're getting promoted? No. But are they able to maintain their job and continue to pay for their mortgage and their kids' education and their food? Yes. So, yeah, these are big controversial skills that our, our, our society will say, no, you can never do this. But I'm sorry, sometimes you do. You need to use it in order to get through the situation in time until you can get something healthy. I, I want to mention one other thing that I don't know if everybody thinks about this and I didn't until recently. I, I've not ever had a problem with substances. I've been very lucky in that way. Um, that's not ever been, I, I'm not prone to those kinds of addictions, but there is somebody very close to me who is, and I was extremely worried about them and I am still worried about them. But one of the things that I did not realize, and I was trying so hard to get them back into sobriety because I was so terrified for them. To me, I was like, this is a life or death situation. I need to do something because this person is going to die. And what I did not see until we ended up having a, a huge fight was that this person, the entire reason why they were using substances is because they were so close to killing themselves and the only thing that was stopping them at that moment from killing themselves was being high so that they could at least numb out some of those feelings so that they wouldn't actively kill themselves. They're not ready yet to seek professional help. I'm still trying to encourage them to do that. They are at least sober now, but 
that was a really hard thing for me to come to terms with because that's not something I've ever struggled with. And that's why sometimes like we're, it, it is controversial and we're not condoning it. We're not saying it's healthy. We're not saying it's good. But sometimes there are reasons that, you know, society doesn't think about and they don't contemplate for why people do certain things in this person's mind. And I'm not saying it's true or that it's reality, but in this person's mind, the only thing stopping them from killing themselves was numbing themselves out with a substance enough to get through the day. So I did want to mention that on the substance abuse, because I think a lot of us, uh, especially because societally we are really programmed to be like, oh no, substances, you can never use them and it's horrible and you immediately need to get off. And then it's like, there's so much fear and there's pressure and everything that's built up behind that. And I was feeling a lot of that too. I got a different perspective because of this person that I'm really close to. And I want to chime yeah. in real quick on that. And I hate to override you, but I feel like that is the exact same thing with self-harm. Like what you talked about, this person is potentially going to kill themselves suicidal. And I've worked with teenagers, mostly just because I was working with adolescents at the time, that that's how they use self-harm. They were cutting themselves or they were burning themselves to prevent killing themselves. Their emotions were so intense and so overwhelming. They had no other way of coping with it besides to take and, and cut themselves or do something like that. And so that's, again, you have to decide what are the risks versus the benefits here. If I am keeping myself from killing myself, yes, this is hurting me. And yes, this is hurting my relationship. But at this point, it's a life and death situation. I am preventing my own suicide. Is this something I want to do permanently? No, definitely not. But is it something I need to do in this moment in order to continue living? Possibly. And that's where we start talking about those controversial ones. I'm sorry, Ivy, to interrupt. I'll throw it back your way. No, that's totally fine. I was going to move on to that next one anyway. Another note that I want to make on that is that as much as we would love to say, oh, you just need to like get that person into therapy, get them help. They just, you know, they, they shouldn't be using that coping mechanism. They should be doing something healthier. You have to keep in mind that when somebody is in such a state of crisis, especially if they stay in a state of crisis for a prolonged period of time, their perception of reality is going to be shifted. Their perception of what is possible is going to be shifted. They may not think that there is any hope for them. They may be afraid to get into therapy because they're afraid that that therapist is gonna tell them that they're broken and they can never be better. Or maybe they've had bad experiences with psychiatric medications in the past and they're terrified they're gonna be put on psychiatric medications again and that they're gonna have similar bad experiences. There can be a lot of reasons why people will choose an unhealthy coping mechanism over a healthy one. And a lot of it is because when you are in a crisis of some kind with your mental health, especially if it lasts for a while, everything that you think, the, everything that you perceive, it's different. It gets warped because of your state of mind. There were so many times when I was deep in my depression with my bipolar disorder that all I did was sleep all day. That's it because that was the thing that was keeping me from killing myself is that if I could stay asleep and unconscious for as many hours out of the day as possible, then I wouldn't kill myself, but I didn't get help because I couldn't afford it at the time. For me, that's what it was. It was, I can't afford a therapist or I'm afraid I'm going to be institutionalized and then I won't be able to afford anything. I'm going to lose my apartment. I'm going to lose my dog. I'm going to and I would get caught in this, this feedback loop in my head that like, this is the only option that I have. I just have to get through. I just have to get through until this depression passes and I 
during that time, I did a lot of things that were not healthy, that were not good for me. Thankfully, I didn't turn to substances because that's not my usual thing. And I didn't turn to direct self-harm because that's not kind of what I'm drawn to. But I did do damage to my life and to a lot of my relationships with the coping mechanisms that I chose. But I chose them because I felt like that was the best option for me at the time because that's where my headspace was at. And and I think with that too, like you were saying, you know, you're afraid of these things or you're worried about those things. And I think sometimes, so you're not even thinking past the moment. One of my my coping skills that I used to use was self-harm. Now, I wasn't a cutter or a burner. I was a puncher. And I would punch whatever I could that was hard enough to bruise myself, whether it was a brick wall, whether it was the floor, whether it was the side of the car, I would punch until it hurt. Sometimes I would punch myself in the forehead until I got bruises across my forehead. And in that time, I wasn't thinking like, oh, you know, I I should probably do something else. At that time, what I was thinking was, "Ah!" because I wasn't thinking. All I was was so overwhelmed. And I knew I had to keep functioning. I was at work. I had to keep working. If I wanted to have money to eat and I wanted to have money for shelter, I could not just leave. I had to be there. So what are you going to do? Because you have to keep going. It's not like you can tell your retail manager, hey, can you just give me a couple hours so I can go to the car and get myself together? It doesn't work that way. At least maybe retail's changed since I've worked in there, but there's not a lot of forgiveness on that. You, you're needed there. That's why they have you scheduled. No, you can't just randomly have two hours to do whatever you need to do in your car. And so to get through the moment, I would punch something and I would feel the pain and I would be able to focus and I'd be able to breathe and I'd be able to get through the moment. And that's all it was, was being able to get through that moment. And society will say, you know, that's never okay. Self-harm is never okay. You know, substance abuse is never okay. And while we're not saying it's okay, what we are saying is sometimes it's better than the alternative. What what else was I going to do? Because I got to the point where I was potentially violent to other people. So what was, what was going to be better for me in that situation? Was it going to be I punch the wall in the bathroom and bruise my hand or bloody it? Or was it better that I punch my supervisor in the face and end up in prison? Well, I don't have a record right now, and I never had to worry about bail, and I never got fired from a job. So I'm going to say self-harm was probably the better option. And the same way when it came towards substance abuse or whatever was keeping you potentially from suicide. It, It wasn't great. It wasn't necessarily even okay, but it was a better option. And I would even say that in some situations, you don't have an option. And I think violence is is a very good example of sometimes where you don't have an option, depending on the environment you're in. Violence is a reality and violence is something you will have to use. Now, I'm going to say in most arenas of life, this is not true. So don't go out there being like, oh, you know, Ivy and Autumn gave me free permission to punch whoever I want. Doesn't work that way. But think about being in places like jail. Or perhaps you're being raised in an extremely disadvantaged, extremely violent neighborhood. What are you going to do? You're just going to let yourself get beat literally to death because these kinds of people aren't going to stop. You're going to have to stand up for yourself and you're going to have to be violent. And that is a coping skill you will have to use to get through that situation so that you can continue your journey to the point you no longer have to use that. Yeah, and I, I think along with that, like you, another scenario in which violence sometimes becomes necessary and has been for a lot of people are uh, soldiers that end up going into combat zones. 
you may not have an option. A lot of times you won't have an option. If you are in combat and it's either you and your entire team die or you have to take out the other people, what are you going to do? Right? There are times when violence is a necessary thing for your survival. Like I was saying, most scenarios, most of us will not need to make use of that coping mechanism and it's not something that we should make use of. But there are people for whom that is part of their daily reality and the only way for them to survive in their current circumstances is to return violence with violence. I worked at a jail when I was 18, that was my first full-time job. And I worked in the housing units and I also worked in booking. And you see that, you especially see that in the housing units where there's a hierarchy established and sometimes the only thing that you can do to create a, a space that's safe for yourself is to either physically defend yourself if somebody attacks you or to be on the offensive and be the first one to attack. Is it, is it good? Is that great? Is that a wonderful way for things to be? No, but it is, that is something that is a real thing for a lot of people or, or even people who are in, you know, war-torn countries or third world countries. It's, it's not just something that applies to people in the U.S., obviously. There's a lot of places in the world where it applies even more, where your life is constantly in danger and being able to be violent could be the only thing that saves your life. It is really true. And I think that's really the biggest point we're trying to make with with a lot of these what we call controversial anti-hero coping skills is to really identify if there is guilt or shame around them, because society does say so often, it's not okay. It's never okay. And life isn't that black and white. There are a million situations where the things that'll never be okay sometimes have to be done to continue. And again, that's why we call these the anti-hero coping skills, because nobody wants to agree with them. Nobody wants to condone them, but they're what has to be done in order to continue functioning. Now, the majority of anti-hero coping skills that we all have aren't going to be these extreme where a lot of us aren't going to be violent. A lot of us aren't going to be self-harmers. A lot of us probably aren't even going to have substance use issues. You know, if we do, we do. That's how it is. But there's a lot of other, other anti-hero coping skills that are not so extreme or big that are still considered negatively, whether by society or ourselves. A really big one for me was, and probably still is, I would say, um, social withdrawal. I, I have a lot of issues interacting with people. I have a lot of social anxiety. I, I'm, of course, autistic spectrum. And people are stressful for me. And so when I am in a high-stress environment or a high-stress time in my life, I don't interact with other humans because it's an easy way to cut out my stress. I just cut out a huge chunk of stress by refusing to interact with people. Not the best thing, but it is something I've done. Um, another thing I've done in the past, of course, is the self-harm. It's something I had to do to function. What are some of the things you've done in the past, Ivy, that aren't like these huge big things, but stuff that's still definitely anti-hero coping skill? Well, I mean, I definitely have some of the, the social withdrawal stuff too. I am an introvert by nature and we grew up very isolated for most people. So that is something that I revert back to. Being around lots of people stresses me out. I currently live in a city. That was a mistake. I should not have done that. 
because I don't think I'm ever going to be in a, in a space where living in a city is going to be good for me. But there are definitely times when I have withdrawn socially way too much where I just didn't interact with anybody. There would be sometimes weeks at a time when I lived by myself where outside of going to work and buying groceries, I did not communicate with anybody. So social withdrawal is something that I used to do to a much more extreme degree. It's still something that I do currently. Is it the best? Eh, it kind of depends on the situation. Uh, another thing that I have had issues with is cutting myself off emotionally from things. Anytime it was an intense emotion of any kind, good, bad, whatever, I would just cut myself off from it because it was too much. I couldn't handle it. It was, I just felt things too intensely. And so I would just choose not to feel at all. So none of those things are, are healthy coping mechanisms at all. They were useful to me at the time, but as I get older and I grow more and I start healing more, I recognize all the detrimental things that that did to me as well. And I know Autumn also has has this particular one as well that uh, that she used to do. And I don't know, pro probably part of part of us are still kind of guilty of this from time to time is being drill sergeants to ourselves to like get ourselves motivated to get things done. You just beat up on yourself relentlessly. It's like, you need to stop being so lazy. Like get your ass out of that bed. You have things to do. This stuff has to get done. You need to be productive. You need to be responsible. You need to do this. You need to do that. Why are you being so stupid? Why are you being so lazy? Why can't you just do this? This should be easy. Stop being like that. I know that's something that I have dealt with a lot, uh, and I, I and I know Autumn's dealt with some of that too. If you want to, if you kind of want to talk to the the messages that you get in your head, Autumn. Oh yeah, definitely the drill sergeant. I, that was a big thing I did, especially in my my late adolescence and my early twenties, um, just to get me through. And, and I think part of it was because you know our parental figures just checked out, so I really didn't know how to have a parental figure. But I remember when I was younger, I was like, you know, I want to. I want to start exercising more. I don't know why I got it in my head. You know, I'm like, what was I like 120 pounds at the time, five foot six. I had no weight to lose, but I got it into my head that I needed to exercise more. And so I remember even writing myself this note before I went to bed to put over my alarm clock. And it was said, you are a fat, ugly cow. No one will love you because you are so fat and ugly. Get your stupid ass out of bed and make yourself less ugly. And that was how I was able to motivate myself into what should have been a very healthy thing, which was exercising. But it was extremely rude and it was extremely horrible. And, and there's been a lot of times that I've had to do that where I've just had to say, you know, you need to keep functioning. Who's going to pick up after you? Who, who's going to pay your way? You know what? Nobody is. And so I've gotten really, really mean with myself. And very luckily for me, I've been able to make a lot of changes so I don't need to do that anymore. And that's what it was at the time, though. It was a need. And I recognized, though, that that was so, it was so not okay. It was so harmful to me that it was just not something I could do anymore. And so I made those changes. And I think, like, one of my biggest things that I used to do as a coping skill was anger. And a lot of people, I don't think they realize that anger is a coping skill. Um, for me, anger is a huge coping skill, or at least it used to be, because anger meant. I kept moving forward because the alternative to anger was depression and falling apart. And so when I got overwhelmed in life and I'm like, I just can't do this anymore, I would get angry. I would get angry at my parents. I would get angry at myself. I would get angry at life. I would get angry. 
And so I would get angry and I would keep working and I'd keep making the money or I'd keep getting through the situation. That is when I had to stop very, very, very quickly because unfortunately when I get angry, I get violent. And I am not a physically abusive person and that I'm going to hurt somebody else. I usually get violent towards myself and I get violent towards objects. I'm, I'm a plate breaker, as I've readily admitted. I break a lot of things like that. Um, plate breaker, um, any object in the house, uh, flipping chairs, I, I would have my little temper tantrum. And that was when I realized, you know, I'm trying to be angry so that I can keep functioning. And it works to some extent, but now the anger's gotten control of me. And now I can't function anymore because this coping skill I was using to function has ruined my functioning. And so I was like, okay, this is gotta go. And so I had to, I had to really, really identify that like, okay, yeah, I am using that as a coping skill. That's something I'm actively choosing again and again. And now I need to figure out how to fix that because this is ruining my life. And so I've, I've had to make changes to make sure I don't do some of those things. But at the same time, I recognize that I still have some of these anti-hero coping skills, but I'm not ready to change at all. I, and one of my biggest ones, and I just had this boy or this conversation recently with my boyfriend, was anxiety. Like I'm like, oh my god, I'm such an anxious person. I talked about, you know, I get the headaches from it. I get around people, and I feel like I have to talk. At, maybe you can't even tell, like a million miles a minute, and I just always feel so rushed, and I'm always doing, 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 going, 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 and I get so exhausted, and I'm like, oh gosh, I should be a less anxious person. And I stopped and I looked at it. I'm like, why am I so anxious? Why am I still using this? Why am I still being this way and doing these behaviors? And I realized, you know what? In five years time, I have gone from living in a travel trailer with no idea what I'm doing with my life to owning my own house and land and living my dream. And the only reason, well, not the only, but one of the main reasons I've been able to do that is because I am an anxious person. I was able to worry about every penny. So I was able to save money, even though I never worked overtime. And both me and my boyfriend were actually unemployed for portions of this time. So we didn't work any more hours. We weren't making amazing wages. I mean, we're talking, depending on what job we had, was either minimum wage to, you know, 12 or 15 bucks an hour at most. And most of the time we were averaging 30 to 35 hours a week. Yet, I was still able to make my dream come true. And the reality was, it was my anxiousness that was allowing this. My concern about every penny, my concern about the future, my concern about safety is what drove me to make this dream happen so quickly. And I realized, you know, I'm not ready to give up this anxiety yet. I, I hate that it causes me pain and I hate that I always feel so frazzled, but I'm not ready to give it up. Because there are a few more goals on my land that I want to achieve. I want to get a permanent house instead of the temporary house. And I want to get a garden and I want to get a well. And these are main things I need. And I know that anxiety is going to push me. Because as soon as I let that anxiety go, I'm going to have a better balance. And I'm going to spend more money on today. And I'm going to spend more time on today. Because that's the healthy thing to do. But that healthy attitude isn't going to get me the goals I need in that time. Are there still things that you're doing, Ivy, these anti-hero coping skills that you're like, you know what? Yeah, I know I do that, but I'm not giving that up just yet. One of the big ones for me is paranoia and worry. I feel and always have felt very unsafe in the world. 
maybe part of that is because I don't know if you got this autumn, but with both mom and grandma, I always kind of got the talk, like, don't run off in the store because somebody is going to kidnap you and then they're going to kill you and then they're going to cut you up into little pieces and we will never see you again. Like, I got some of that growing up. So that started me off that way. My obsession with, with true crime documentaries also probably did not help. Working in law enforcement as a detention officer in a jail also did not help. Dating a lot of cops and military people, yeah, that probably didn't help either. But I am not ready to let go of this idea that I need to always keep my head keep my head on a swivel, always be looking over my shoulder, always, you know, carry some form of defense with me, always be aware of my surroundings, always let somebody know where I'm going. I have these things in place and I feel very unsafe when I'm out in the world, but I am not ready to surrender that yet. And I don't want to, I don't think I ever want to completely surrender it because there are so many people who thought it's never going to happen to me. And then they do end up getting raped or they do end up getting kidnapped or they do end up getting murdered. That is not something I ever want to experience in my own life. So I'm not willing to let go of those fears completely because they keep me aware. When I start forgetting those things and I start feeling too safe, I consciously kind of pull myself back and be like, okay, but you need to remember that there are people out there that cannot be trusted. And there are people out there who are violent or that have mental health issues that cause them to do very horrible things to other people. There's all sorts of situations in which you may not be safe and you should always be aware. I always want to be aware. I never want to fall into a state of complacency that may put me in a dangerous situation that I should not be in and that I cannot get out of. I also have, uh, along those lines, worry about the people that I really care about. Uh, if If too much time passes and I haven't heard from them, I'm going to start getting very worried very quickly and I'm going to start to panic. And where for some people, it's like, oh, well, if I don't hear from this person, you know, a few weeks or a couple months or whatever, then I'll start to worry. For me, it's based on how often I normally hear from that person. If I hear from that person pretty much every day and then 24 hours passes and I don't hear from them, I start thinking, did something happen to them? Are they okay? Are they in some sort of distress? Do they need help? And I will, I start worrying and panicking. And nine times out of 10, nothing is wrong. But there are a few times when something is amiss and I don't want to miss those opportunities to do something that can be helpful. I have a very close friend right now who's going through some very horrible things and they've been feeling suicidal. I normally hear from this person every single day. If more than a day goes by and I don't hear from them, you better bet that I am reaching out to them because I don't want them to get into a headspace and get withdrawn from everybody else and get into this negative feedback loop in their own head and then them actually follow through on that suicidal ideation. I want them to know that they are cared about and that they're loved and somebody is thinking about them and actively wants them to be safe and is trying to ensure that they are safe. Another thing is every time my boyfriend walks out the door, there is a part of me that thinks he may never come home again because life is random and you can't control it. People drop dead of aneurysms. They get shot in drive-bys. They get into car accidents and they die. So many things can happen 
that we don't have control over. I'm not willing to let go completely of that worry because there are times that my boyfriend and I have been fighting all day and he needs to leave to get some space. And that thought in the back of my head that something could happen to him is what makes it so that no matter what, no matter how mad I am at him at that time, I never let that man walk out the door without telling him how much I love him. Because even if there's nothing I can do about it and something does happen to him and I don't ever see him again, I want to make sure that the last words he's ever heard from me were, I love you. I never want him to leave with both of us so angry that he does not hear those words from my mouth. I never want him to doubt how much I love him. Do these things cause me stress and anxiety, my paranoia, my worry, all of that? Yes, they do. They cause me stress and anxiety. And sometimes it causes stress and anxiety for the people around me because I worry too much. But I'm not ready to let those things go because for me, they still serve an important purpose. Am I getting better about mitigating that? Yes. And I will continue to get better over time. But it's not something that I'm ready to completely let go of. And it's not something that I may necessarily ever completely let go of. I'm always going to be looking over my shoulder because as a woman, I feel like a walking target all the time. I think it's probably wise to be aware of those sorts of dangers. So even though that causes me anxiety and stress, I don't want to forget that there are dangers in the world that I need to be aware of. I don't want to get that, forget that for myself. And I don't want to forget that for the people that I care about. And, and I think that, I mean, what you talked about also brings a very important concept to light, which is the context of that that coping skill, the context of that coping mechanism, whatever it is. Because you talked about being paranoid and worried. You live in Seattle. It's one of the largest cities in the United States. There's a lot of people there. And whenever you have a lot of people, you have a lot of violence. So really, is it being paranoid or is it just being conscious and taking appropriate actions to keep yourself safe? I could say the same thing about myself. I sleep with a gun next to my bed. It's within hand's reach. My boyfriend has a gun on his side of the bed. We have a loaded shotgun under the bed. And most people are going to go, holy crap, that's, that's a little excessive. You're a little paranoid. I live in rural eastern Montana. By the time a police officer was going to even be able to get to me, a law enforcement or any sort of help, it's probably going to be at minimum 30 minutes. There are bears that live here. There are grizzly bears. There are wolves in eastern Montana. So let's even just discount human on human violence because maybe that won't happen. Maybe there's no wandering serial killer, which is quite possible because I live in a very rural area. It would be a lot of wandering to get to my house. But there are potentially dangerous animals, dangerous animals that are known in some occasions to attempt to enter your house by force. So is that paranoid? Maybe. Or maybe it's also contextually responsible. You know, maybe that coping skill of, of sleeping with that, that gun by your bed is what you need in your environment. And so that's something you also have to consider, you know, like, okay, society disapproves of this, of this paranoia, or they count it as this or that. But does it work in the context? Does it make sense in the context? You know, even with Ivy, how she's saying, you know, she gets paranoid about reaching out to people. Ivy, because, you know, of, of our nature, when she does make friends, a lot of her friends have mental health issues. And people with mental health issues are more likely to have problems with suicide or violence or other things. So is that coping skill really something excessive or even negative? Or is it just an honest reaction to the situation she's in?
And that's kind of something you have to think about. And now there are some things, though, that are definitely, I could say, an anti-hero coping skill that society doesn't approve of. But sometimes you're just going to choose it anyway, you know, even if it doesn't make sense for the context. And I think Ivy can chime in with me on this one. Uh, a big one for me is rigidity, uh, a refusal to compromise on certain things. Um, you know, as I've said before, I'm living off grid. And part of the reason I'm living off grid, I don't agree with culture. I don't agree with the violence. I don't agree with the massacres. I don't even, I'm not even talking about human on human. I'm talking to the environment. I'm talking to animals. I'm talking about the destruction that just is our society. And so people are like, no, you have to compromise. You need to work. You need to recycle. You need to whatever little thing. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not going to participate in something I don't agree with. And so every single day I'm working to remove myself more and more from society. And that is definitely negatively frowned on. I am a hermit. I am a crazy person, a, a prepper or whatever you want to call that. But that's something I'm not going to change. I am not going to all of a sudden be like, you know, it's okay that three-year-old girls are getting raped in the Middle East so that we can have gas to get to work. I'm not okay with that. And I'm never going to be okay with it. And I'm not going to make the compromises necessary to agree with society so that I can fit in society. And so that's one of those coping mechanisms, that's rigidity, that in most mental health, they will say, you know, that is very unhealthy to be that rigid. I'm taking a stand on it. I know it has its consequences. I've, I've had to go through a lot of trouble to get off the beaten path to get out of culture. And I've exposed myself to a lot of danger because of it. I'm not going to change on that. I'm just not. Uh, yeah, I can definitely chime in on that too. And I find as I'm getting older, I'm kind of taking increasingly more of the, the route that Autumn is on my views on society and the really screwed up things that we do as civilization that we just put on the back burner and it's out of sight, out of mind. I have been around too many people who have been on the receiving end of that shit or who have been exposed to those sorts of things. My boyfriend, he did, he did two tours of duty in Iraq. Some of the stories that he's told me make me very aware of how other people in other countries live and how much of their how much of their struggles is is because of how society operates whether it's society overall globally or the society that they live in that humans can be garbage i am very rigid about my principles on what is okay and what is not okay as far as human behavior goes Kind of leading into, into my next thing, one of the things that, that society really looks down on is the unwillingness to forgive. There's so much pressure in our society. Well, you have to forgive and you have to do it not just for the other person, but for you to get closure. Bullshit, not always. No, there are situations in, when, in which forgiveness is not the appropriate response. I have gotten a lot of pressure over the years to forgive my father for the things that he did. I'm not willing to do that. Not yet. When he is no longer on this earth, maybe. But as long as he is alive, I do not feel safe to forgive him because I know that I am vulnerable to him. Yes, I am an adult now and he has been out of my life for quite some time. And should I feel safe? Maybe, but I don't because he has not changed. 
And a lot of the things that he did were completely unacceptable, things that he did to me, things that he did to my sister, to a lot of people in our family, uh, to a lot of his patients as a psychologist. I view him as being a very manipulative, exploitative person. But I also know that I am vulnerable to him because when I was little, I was daddy's girl and he was my whole world. And he can come across as being so loving and sweet and gentle and it is a manipulation. And I know this as an adult, I know this, but I also know that that little girl in me is still vulnerable to that. So I am not willing to forgive him, not right now, because for me, in my mind, I am not safe to forgive him yet. Maybe someday when he has passed, I'll be able to because I'll feel safe to. I do not feel safe to do that right now because for me to forgive him would be opening the door for him to get close to me again. And I do not feel strong enough in that way to be able to resist his manipulations. Society says that's wrong. Society says you should you know, give him a blank slate. He's your father. He's your blood. You should forgive. Uh, you know, you, you should let him die with, with peace, knowing that you've forgiven him. That's what society says. I do not feel that forgiveness is always the appropriate response. And I do not feel that it is okay for society to try to force somebody to forgive their abuser. If somebody has, in an even more extreme case, if somebody has been abducted and raped and tortured by somebody and they are blessed enough to live, maybe they don't even feel blessed because it was that traumatic for them, for society or for anybody to push that person to forgive the individual who did that damage to them, that to me is unacceptable. And that's something I am unwilling to compromise on. You forgive when you are ready to and only when you are ready to. And it is not right for anybody to tell you that you have to forgive before you feel safe to do so. So those are two things for me that I definitely hold on to, that refusal to compromise with principles and ethics and just the way that I, I believe that people should treat each other. And also that, that forgiveness thing, that's a really big one for me. And, and I completely agree with that. And, and the thing is like, I feel like these anti-hero coping skills, they can range from like, you know, this is something that's causing serious harm and I need to change it immediately to, you know, this is something that's not great for me, but you know what, I, I'm going to work on it and get rid of it over time. I'm just not ready yet to, you know, is this the hill I choose to die on? And you're like, yes, yes, this is. I'm not compromising. And, and they really ran the range. And that's one of the things about anti-hero coping skills is all of these are going to cause negative consequences, whether it be the disapproval of society, whether it be headaches and pain, whether it be personal turmoil within your relationships, whatever it is, all of these anti-hero coping skills, because they are anti-hero, they're going to cause problems. So if you are going to use them, if you're going to rely on them, if you're choosing not to change yet, or if you're refusing to change ever with those, you still have the responsibility to make healthy choices about these unhealthy behaviors, skills, and traits. And I think that's the next portion we really need to get into is, you know, here's all those examples of these, these anti-hero coping skills. And maybe you've decided, you know what, yeah, I have some of these. I think all of us do, whether or not we want to admit it. Now it's the point where you make the conscious decision to use or not use it. The conscious decision to keep it, change it, or just, you know, base your life on it, however it happens to be. All of that starts, though, 
with identifying the skill behavior trait. Before we get into that part, can I address one yeah. more thing? That there are some of these anti-hero coping mechanisms that society actually glorifies that maybe they shouldn't. Like hyper productivity okay, yeah. is definitely one that I noticed. Society tells us we should be productive 100% of the time and you should feel like shit about yourself if you are not constantly being productive and if you are not constantly contributing to society in the way that society dictates that you should. That is, I feel like that, that can be lumped in with these anti-hero coping mechanisms because a, a lot of us tend to do that anyway uh, for one reason or another, whether because of social pressure or because of you know us being responsible for other people and being caregivers, or whether that's just because we're looking for a distraction from, from our own issues. And so we're just filling our time with all of these things where we, where we are productive. But that's one of the things too, where I think we need to be mindful and aware so that we can make a good analysis of how things are actually affecting us because being hyperproductive all the time can be incredibly damaging to your life. It can be incredibly damaging to your health, to your relationships, to your relationships, to lots of areas of your life. And yet society says, no, that one's fine. That's okay. You can run yourself into the ground and that's good. That's how we know you're a good worker and you're a strong contributor to the world and to society. And you should be proud of yourself for always working that hard for not having a life of your own because you are contributing to the machine and how it operates. Like, I, I think that's something we also need to be aware of is that some of these anti-hero coping mechanisms are ones that are not particularly healthy for us. But the society is like, no, nah, it's cool. That's fine. You can do that. That's awesome. And they and they actively encourage it. And that's a really good point that I'm glad you brought up and that we didn't, you know, move on yet from that. Um, I think another one of those, and, and it's one of my personal pet peeves, is acceptance. I, I know acceptance is great. And you, you've got to come to the point where you like, you know, accept that things aren't within your control and you have to accept that situations are certain ways. And I feel that in my mind, acceptance gets pushed way too much in your in society because the reality is, is we do have some control over that so you know if i'm if i'm living in a horrible violent neighborhood and i can never get a good job because you know it, it's just such a dangerous area acceptance isn't a great concept for me no i'm not going to accept that i live in a shitty neighborhood with a shitty life you know what i'm going to do i'm going to work to make changes i'm not going to accept where I am. And I feel that applies so many places, whether it be in real life or whether it be psychologically or mentally or spiritually, we always get told, oh, you need to accept, you need to accept, you need to accept. And that is a huge, you know, I would say hero coping skill almost. It's not even anti-hero, but it is a big coping skill that gets pushed by society. And it can be very positive, but because it gets pushed so much, it actually ends up can be very negative for you because if you just accept where you're at and you're like, oh, well, I'm just mentally ill and that's it. And there's nothing I can do about it. No, because that's what the acceptance piece always seems to be is while well, you just accept it because there's nothing you can know. There's a lot of things you can do. And so I think acceptance is another one of those that society tries to shove down our throat, but it gets so excessive that it ends up ricocheting. And I think that's a really good point. You know, we have all this guilt and shame about coping skills we do have that society disapproves. But sometimes there's one society approves of that also aren't very great. It, it's it's funny to me how society 
just dictates what which ones of these coping mechanisms are like okay and which ones aren't and a lot of times we don't put very much thought into it because we just accept it because it's ingrained into us it's it's what we grow up with it's what's culturally there and that varies from culture to culture but it's it is interesting to me how many of us just take it for granted that society dictates what what is appropriate and what is not what is good for us and what is not. And when you really look at it, some of these things that society says, yeah, you should definitely do that. It's like, no, no, I don't think so. Some of the things that are totally normalized by society are things that if you, if you want to uh, kind of on the note of acceptance and self-acceptance, I mean, there's so many things with society. It's like, yes, you should love yourself and accept yourself, but buy all this makeup, get plastic surgery, buy these expensive clothes because you'll like yourself better. Everybody will like you more if you do these things because you are not likable or desirable or wanted if you don't fit within the narrow confines of what we consider to be attractive or valuable or whatever. So I, I think we always need to be aware of, of how we make our decisions and always be aware of the coping mechanisms we have and to see not only whether or not they're actually good for us, but whether they're being pushed on us by society as being a positive thing when they may not be a positive thing, or at least be a, they, they, it may be a mixed bag where it can be both good and negative. Because like you said, some things get pushed into excess. And I feel like a lot of times, societally speaking, I don't know if it's like this in the rest of the world, but in the US, I definitely feel like so many things get pushed to the excess. Everything is so extreme. So something that may be initially like a good thing, it gets warped and it gets pushed to this extreme where now it's become something incredibly unhealthy. And yet many of us just accept that that's how things are. And we buy into the idea that, no, this is good for me. This is what I should be doing when it's actually very detrimental in a lot of ways. And I think then that does segue into where we're going, which is if you are going to use a coping skill, whether it be an antihero or in like you just brought up, a healthy one approved by society, you really, really need to examine whether it's actually helpful or not. And, and that does start with identifying that skill, behavior, and trait. You know, saying, you know, I'm in a stressful situation. I'm having a lot of emotions. What am I doing to make it through? You know, am I spending too much? Am I buying lots of makeup? Am I working more at work? Or am I drinking more? Or am I being more anxious? What are you doing to get yourself through? And that's really where it starts is you have to identify what you're doing. If you if you want to live healthily, I am a big believer you need to have awareness. You need to have awareness of what you're doing. And so whatever coping skills you're using, you need to first identify even what they are. And then from that point, you need to figure out if they are negative or positive or neutral for that matter for you. And part of that's going to be, you know, are they frowned upon by society or are they blessed by society but are actually harmful like we just talked about? Um, but like some of the things that are frowned upon by society, like we talked about, were that non-compromising attitudes, uh, those rigid boundaries, that paranoia. But the reality is, like we said, they're not necessarily bad things or they make sense contextually or they fit with me and they make me feel healthier. And so I really think you do have to identify what are you doing and then you have to identify that context, both the social belief around it and the personal belief around it 
as well as the context you're behaving in it. What are your thoughts, Ivy? Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think another thing that you want to be aware of is, is the double standards and hypocrisy that can come with that, especially when you're talking about how society uh, how society labels your particular set of coping mechanisms. Um, because a lot of times society is very hypocritical in the way that they do things. Like the example I was using before, it's like, yes, you should love and accept yourself, but buy all this makeup you know, buy all of these fancy clothes, make sure that you have a big house and an expensive car and all of that stuff. But you should totally just love yourself. Like you don't, you don't actually need these things to love yourself, but you'll love yourself more if you have them. So it's like, it, it, on the one end, they're saying, you're totally worthy and valuable as you are. But on the other end, they're saying, yeah, but you'll be more worthy and valuable and more people will like you if you do these things and you consume and you spend and you do all of that stuff. If you you know, put yourself into debt so that you can have all these fancy things to impress other people, because that's really what it's all about. But don't forget to, to love yourself at the same time, you know, or, you know, we should, you should care more about yourself and take good care of your health and eat right and exercise and do all of that. But we also need you to work 70 hours a week. How are you going to do that? How are you going to balance those things? Because some of the guilt and shame that we feel comes from those double standards, comes from that hypocrisy. The obesity is a horrible thing and people eat too much and everything, but here's 60 commercials, one right after another for fast food joints. Just looking at the whole context and taking it holistically. And I think, you know, with all those messages, in the end, you've got to bring it down to you. That's that's the reality of it. You need to perform that risks versus benefits analysis. And for those of you that aren't familiar, risk versus benefits is a big thing in the pharmacy industry. And anytime a drug is going to get released or a doctor is going to prescribe a drug, they basically they look at a risks versus benefits. And what this means is like every drug has risks. It's going to have problems. It's going to have side effects. It's going to cause issues. But are the benefits the person is going to get bigger than the issues it causes. And that's what you need to do with your behaviors. You know, these anti-hero coping skills, whatever these behaviors are, you've got to perform that risk versus benefit analysis for you in your life. And now for you in your life, that doesn't necessarily just mean for you. Does it make me and my life personally better? If you're a very relationally driven person, then you're going to have to take that into accord. Well, does it make me and my life better? And does it make me and my spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, partner, whatever's life better? And if you're a very socially and community-driven person, then you're going to have to look at that behavior in the, si in, in the context of the society or of your church group or whatever it happens to be. So you've got to really have an understanding of you and your priorities and then you're going to have to be aware of those behaviors and you're going to have to say, okay, if I do this, what are the risks? What are the problems? What is going to arise from this that is going to be harmful and not beneficial? Okay. Now, what are the benefits? How is this behavior going to help me or help my community or help my boyfriend or however it is that your priorities lay? And then you're going to have to say, okay, do the benefits outweigh the risks or do the risks outweigh the benefits? And if the risks outweigh the benefits, then it's something you're going to have to look at changing. But if the benefits outweigh the risks, Maybe it's something you can do. Maybe not forever, but maybe at least for right now. And, and that's all really, really necessary because you need to make a conscious choice to use these.
If you're just going around on autopilot, just doing whatever society tells you, just doing whatever you grew up doing, you're never going to change. You always do what you've always done. You're always going to get what you've always got. It's one of those famous quotes out there. If you want to continue growing, if you want to continue to become healthier, to make that journey, to grow towards your own light, you've got to make the conscious choice to do it. That is part of growth as a person. That's part of healing. If you have a history of trauma, it's always being aware, always reevaluating, because you also have to think about too, like your circumstances will change over time. And you're going to need to reevaluate based on the circumstances that you're in and the relationships that you have and, and be able to adapt, be able to adjust as necessary. That's why it has to be a conscious process. And it's not, it's not beneficial in the long run for you to just be like, nope, these are the, the coping mechanisms that I have. They've always worked for me. I'm just going to keep those forever. There's no need to even think about changing them or to even reevaluate whether they're still helping me. I'm just going to keep doing the same thing because that's what I've always done. That's not helpful. That's not beneficial that you don't grow that way. Your relationships don't grow that way. Because even if like, if, if, it, if you are a relationally oriented person and you are having to readjust kind of your coping mechanisms based on the relationship that you're in to better meet your your partner in the middle. Well, guess what? Where you meet your partner in the middle now will probably be different from where you meet your partner in the middle 10 years from now. So you always need to be able to reevaluate, reevaluate, readjust, and make changes. Be willing to adapt. Don't be I know we, I know we talked about our own rigidity earlier, but that is one area where I would definitely say, do not be rigid because you will keep yourself stuck if you're never willing to consider the possibility that it's time for things to change, where it's time for you to learn some new skills or some different skills or to be able to pull back on certain things or be able to give a little bit more in other ways. That's such an important part of being able to grow as a person, not getting yourself stuck and not causing long-term damage to your relationships or to you know your work environment or whatever because everything else is changing around you and if you don't change guess what you, you're going to get stuck and a lot of the things that you rely on in your life now and the people you rely on they may even if it doesn't end badly could just drift away because if you don't grow anybody who does grow is going to move beyond you that's just kind of something that happens so I would say definitely don't be rigid about, about being willing to make changes. Always be willing to readjust your coping mechanisms and to at least be aware of what you're doing. And being aware of what's going on around you, like you said, you know, being aware of the changes that are happening in the environment. And I think another big thing is you're going to have to, if you decide you're going to use this, you know, you've, you've, you've assessed your behavior, you've done the risk versus benefits analysis, you've looked at the environment, you say, okay, yes, right now, this is what I'm doing. You've got to accept the consequences of using it. Because as we talked about it, the risk versus benefits, there are risks. And these risks are the consequences. So if you use this behavior, you are going to have consequences. So be aware of them. And, and don't, bitch about them. If, if you choose to do this, you don't get to bitch about it. That's the reality of it. You know, you, you embraced it. You said, okay, this is it. I mean, you, you can vent and you can be annoyed, but you don't get to go on and on and on about, oh, it's so horrible and woe beyond to me. This is a conscious choice. So be empowered by that choice. And, and I think a really big thing is you then need to set up systems to mitigate the damages. You need to, to be aware that these risks are there 
And you need to make sure that you are taking measures to reduce the risks whenever possible. You know, Ivy and I talked earlier about promiscuity. Maybe you've decided, you know what, I really need to be promiscuous. I know it's not good for me, but this is something that really feeds something I need right now and I don't have anything to replace it. So what can I do to mitigate the damage? Well, maybe that means using protection, always going to the same regular bar where everybody knows you, making sure a friend knows where you are, doing whatever it means to reduce those damages. If you've decided that, you know, I just need a little bit of alcohol, a little more um, marijuana, I need a little whatever it is to really get through the work week. Okay. So think about how you can mitigate those damages. Are you going to do that the night before staying up drinking until five in the morning when you got to wake up at six? Probably not the best option. Or can you hold through until Friday when you get off work, use the weekend to, to do what you need to do so that you can then be prepared for work on Monday? You've got to set up systems to mitigate the damages. Um, what are some of the systems you've set up in your own life? Like, look at some of, Ivy, what are some of those that you've have, like, this is a behavior I have. I know it's going to cause this issue. This is what I've done to help deal with these consequences. I know a big one for me because my relationship is very important to me. I am a very monogamy-oriented person, and I am somebody that gives myself wholeheartedly to my partner. So one of the things that has been an area of conflict for us in the past and still rears its ugly head sometimes is because... I worry so much and I tend to panic very quickly. Uh, most of last year, especially with uh, COVID and just everything being as it was and the higher stress levels in general just made it worse. And we had just moved in together in December of 2019. And my partner had never lived with another person before. Not that he'd been romantically involved with anyway. He'd had roommates and stuff, but he, he'd never had to be accountable to a romantic partner before. He'd never been in love before we got together. Like this is his first relationship that he's ever thought like, okay, long-term potential and you know, build a life with this person, that sort of thing. But he is a very independent person. And I'm a very independent person too. And before we moved in together, we just kind of went on about our lives and we would text throughout the day. And that was fine. That was great. Once we moved in together though, if he would say he was going to be home at six and he wasn't home at six, I'd start to worry at 6.15. I'd start to panic at 6.30. I'd be calling his phone. I'd be texting him because I was scared something happened to him. We had so many fights because that is a, a trigger for me, not knowing whether he's safe. When he says he's going to be home at a certain time, if he's not home on the dot at that time, I would really start to panic. And we had a lot of fights and it almost ruined our relationship. And I had to take a look at that and be like, you know, this is, I am taking this too far. To some degree, I mean, yeah, he needs to compromise too. And we both understood that, but I could look at my behavior. I could step back and look at my behavior and be like, no, this is excessive. I am panicking too much. I'm freaking out. I'm calling him too many times. I'm automatically assuming he's dead on the side of the road somewhere. That is not okay. So I've had to start making some adjustments and he's made adjustments with me. We have way fewer fights about it, but what we have now is better communication. We've really worked on better communication where it's, if he says he's going to be home at a certain time and he's not going to be able to be home at that certain time, he gives me a heads up. Or if he loses track of time, if I call or text him, he'll get back to me and be like, oh, sorry, like I'll, you know, I'm on my way home or this is my new ETA or, or whatever. Both of us have made adjustments. And I won't panic five minutes after he's supposed to be home if he's not here. I wait because I know him 
now that we've been living together. And I know he is a very focused person. And if he gets into a project, he will lose track of time. He loves working on cars. If he gets to working on a car and a job that was supposed to take an hour ends up taking three hours, he won't look at his phone a single time that entire three hours unless he needs to look up something about how to fix the car. He will lose track of time. So I know this about him now. So now before he's supposed to get home by the time that he originally set, I'll send him a message and be like, hey, you on your way back yet? About five minutes before he's supposed to, to get home. And then if I don't hear from him half hour later, send him another text. Hey, you okay? And then in an hour, I'm like, okay, I can start panicking now. I can start worrying now. And you should expect this from me. And we've it took a while for us to find a middle ground. And sometimes even that doesn't work. Like I know when I get closer to my period, something about my hormones makes me way more prone to worrying, way more prone to fear, uh, quicker to anger, irritability, all those things. I get really anxious and depressed and worried and paranoid as my hormones shift as I get closer to my period. Knowing this though, another way that I'm able to mitigate some of the, the damages is that Part of my communication with my partner is giving him a heads up because this is something that routinely happens. It happens every month. I can start to feel the shift a few days in advance. I give him a heads up every single month. Hey, just to let you know, coming up on my time of the month, you know what that means. It means I'm going to be a little bit more emotionally volatile and I'm going to be more worried if I don't hear from you when you're supposed to be home. That has helped substantially because before that, I would worry, I would panic, I wouldn't be able to get in touch with him. And when I finally would get in touch with him, I'd be angry, then he'd get angry. And then we would just sit in this bitter silence for a while when he got home. And then we'd fight for a little while. And then we wouldn't talk for a bit. And then I would have calmed down, but he would think that I was still angry. And so he would just give me all this space, which is not what I wanted. And it would, it caused all these misunderstandings. So now it's just such a focus on communication with him making sure we have a system in place. So, okay, this is reasonable expectations. These are what reasonable expectations are, and we have agreed on those terms. Those are the kinds of things that you can do to mitigate the damages. And in relationships, communication is such an important thing. And you don't have to be a dick about it. You don't have to be defensive. You don't even have to make it a big deal. When I know that I'm going to be struggling a bit more, I don't sit down with him and make it this long drawn out thing where I'm like, okay, it's coming up on that time of the month and you know, that you know what that means and this is what we need to do and this is the plan that we have in place and all of that. No, it's a casual thing. I'm gonna be more emotionally volatile for the next week or so. It's just a thing that happens. I'm gonna do my best to try to control my shit, but please be understanding that I'm a little more crazy right now. <laughs> That's something that works for us. I think, I think that's really excellent. Like if you do have the relationships or you do have close friendships or even close familial relationships, remembering to explain yourself. You know, a lot of times we get caught up in that defensiveness because there is so much guilt or shame from society or ourselves that we feel like so defensive and like, oh, I have to defend myself and I don't want to do that. And that's not right. You make me, but it's not that you don't have to defend yourself, but you may need to explain yourself and you may need to come up with a compromise. And then one of the other things you said in there also was like basically creating a structure or a system to make sure that coping skill doesn't get out of line for you. So instead of just, oh, it's six o'clock, let's turn on the anxiety worry. It's like, okay, it's six, 
let's look at 605, then let's look at six, you know, 30, and then let's look at seven. And you set up that structure so that you can be aware of what's happening. And I think that's a really, really big thing. And I know for me, like, even with that, um, for mitigating the damages, structure can even go into your environment. I have certain things that I get really anxious and really upset about. For example, if something's not there when I need it, when I need it, I will get freaked the heck out. Fingernail clippers are, are a huge thing for me for no reason. I guess it's probably a sensory issue. If my fingernails need to be clipped, it often means they need to be clipped now. And so I know I'm anxious. I know I'm not ready to let that go. I know if my fingernails get too long, I'm going to freak out. So by mitigating the damage, I do something so simple as saying, this is the one location the fingernail clippers will always be in. And everybody in the house, whoever I've lived with knows this is where the fingernail clippers go. So that way we don't have this issue. I don't have a freak out. My anxiety doesn't run away because I've done something so simple as setting up something in my environment to change that. Another thing was tools. My boyfriend is very ADD, does not put tools back, does not put things back where they go. If I'm working on a project and I need a screwdriver, I need a pair of pliers, I need a wrench, whatever, and I have to stop and spend 30 minutes to look for it, I'm going to freak out. So we got my, my own toolkit. This is Autumn's toolkit. So that way, if Autumn needs a tool, it will always be where the tool needs to be. And so I, I did things in my environment to set up a structure to make sure that these consequences didn't get too big, to mitigate them. And, and then some of the things I've also done is like, again, with the anxiety, because that's, that's my big one, um, supplements and diet. I know sugar makes it worse, so I stay away from sugar. Um, I know that I'm going to be really, really upset. I've got a work trip coming up next week. I know things are going to get bigger. I know they're going to get stressful. So in order to mitigate the damages, I've started taking more supplements. I, I bought a couple of things that I don't usually take and I'm trying those out and, and I'm trying to help mitigate those damages. Yeah, I mean, supplements and diet are definitely big things for me as well. I mean, that's primarily how I manage my bipolar disorder is through diet and supplements and just routine. That's a big thing for me. Routine is super important. Sometimes maybe I take it a little bit too far, but it's, that's, that's a way for me to keep some of these things in check. I like, like I was saying with the supplements, one of the things that really helps me with my anxiety. And if I am feeling intensely anxious, I take a GABA supplement or I take a couple because that I know for me will instantly knock down my anxiety. And sometimes you have to play around for a while before you find what actually works for you. It's not what works for you is not always going to be what works for somebody else. Sometimes you have to kind of figure it out by trial and error. Another thing that I wanted to make note of when Autumn was talking about adding structure to your environment, one of the things that I know can be a unhealthy coping mechanism, or at least a mixed bag coping mechanism for a lot of people, myself included, I know Autumn as well, comfort eating. A lot of us eat when we are stressed, when we are anxious, when we are depressed, food makes us feel good. There's lots of reasons for that. It's neurochemically built into us eating makes us feel good and it helps us when we're stressed out. So one of the things that you can do to kind of mitigate the potential damage is make sure that you have healthier options at least. Don't fill your house with junk food. If you know that you comfort eat, if you're going to need to eat, you know you can have treats and stuff, but don't fill your house completely with that. Try to make most of the food that you own you have in your possession that's easily accessible, at least relatively healthy, because then you're going to be able to head off at the past some of the health issues that come from just eating 
garbage just because it tastes good doesn't mean you should eat it all the time. One of those things that actually, it's a total waste of packaging, but the individual serving sizes can help really good with comfort eating. I'm super bad about comfort eating. If I have a bag of potato chips, I will not stop until I've eaten the bag of potato chips. So I've ended up having to get that, you know, 40 pack of little tiny ones. Because once I start opening the third bag, I'm like, oh, this is kind of excessive. I've eaten three bags of potato chips in my head and I stop. And that's equivalent to maybe, you know, a quarter of a bag that I normally would have eaten. So sometimes those individual sizes can also help with that mitigating the damages of overeating. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that may not be something that you have to do forever. If you're worried about being wasteful, I totally get it. I, I do. But that may not be something you have to do forever. But it may, may be what you need for the time being so that you can slowly adjust and develop healthier coping skills, healthier coping mechanisms, where you can do things more in moderation. Because that is one of the things that that comes up with any coping mechanism when you are in a high stress situation, or you are in crisis of some kind, everything is, you know, panic mode, and the adrenaline is going and you just you need to feel better, you just want to feel better. And a lot of times you're not thinking clearly. So maybe you don't have the self control when you're really stressed out to only have two cookies, unless those two cookies are in their own individually wrapped package. It's fine. Do what you need to do. And you can you can improve slowly. You don't have to change these things overnight. And it's, it's not realistic to change these things overnight. It's forming habits. It's learning new skills. It's slowly replacing unhealthy coping mechanisms with much healthier ones. You can go from being that drill sergeant to yourself and beating yourself up all the time, you know, in order to motivate yourself to using positive affirmations to help yourself, to be motivated, to be inspired. You can make that shift. It's probably not gonna be something you can do instantly because if you're used to being a drill sergeant to yourself, it doesn't matter how many post-it notes you put on your bathroom mirror in the morning that say, I am enough, I am beautiful, I am worthy. You're gonna look at those and think that's a fucking lie because all you've done for years is beat the shit out of yourself every day to motivate yourself. So it's a slow shift. You, it, It's very rare for people to actually be able to go from that, that one end of the spectrum to the opposite end of the spectrum without a process in between. And that's part of why I laugh in that gallows humor kind of way about those cliche self-help kinds of phrases, because it makes it sound like it's so easy and it's really not. Sometimes you really do have to just start small. Most of the time you have to start small and kind of make steady progress towards your, your ultimate goal of having a healthier coping skill instead of just falling back on things that you've always done, whether they're good for you or not. And I think hand in hand with that, though, is also working on the background issues. You know, a lot of us, again, that coping skill, that coping mechanism is the behavior we use in that stressful, in that overwhelming, in that high emotion situation to get us through. So when you work on your background issues, that high stress situation, that high emotion situation, that overwhelming situation isn't going to happen as much. And so it used to be I needed the self-harm because my emotions would get so excessive. That was the only way to handle it. And there was nothing else that was going to work. 
So any of that taking a breath or quick break or taking a walk or visiting my safe place, none of that was going to help. Those were all positive coping skills that I laughed at because they were useless for where I was. And so in order to get away from that self-harm, I had to work on where I was and I had to learn on managing my emotions so that some of those other positive coping skills were things that I could use. And so now instead of getting to the point that I have to harm something in order to get my emotions under control, I've built my awareness of my emotions so I can acknowledge when they're getting escalated and step in and use a positive coping skill before I get to that point. And so that's part of it too, is some of these, these anti-hero coping skills, you need them because you're in crisis. And so if you can work with some of the other stuff, and sometimes crisis is out of your hands, don't get me wrong, sometimes crisis happens to you. Sometimes the world gets COVID and shits on your life, I get that. But sometimes if we're able to work on ourselves, we're able to, to abate some of that crisis, to, to stop it before it happens, or to be aware of it before it escalates. And that's when some of these, these other more positive coping skills can step in. And then you start practicing them more and you start practicing them more. And then eventually, even in that higher stress situation, that positive thing is going to help because it's just ingrained now. And it's helped so much before and you know it's going to help. And, and I think that's the biggest thing with all of this is you just have to keep working and growing. The, if you've used any of these anti-hero coping skills, you just keep working. You keep to working to ensure it causes the least possible harm to yourself. You keep working to ensure it causes the least possible harm to others. And you keep working to see if you can let go of it, to see if you can replace it, to see if you can change it. Constantly do the check-ins with yourself and your life and see if you can move to something more positive so that you're at a place of optimal health for you. Because it is, it's just a continual process and you will readjust throughout the entire course of your life. Because even when you do develop healthy coping skills, you're still going to have to make adjustments to those as well based on your circumstances as you move through life. What works for you now may not work for you later. And the same thing applies with healthier coping mechanisms. What is a really ideal thing that helps you in the moment that's healthy? It may, it may be different later. It, you may need something else. I've cycled through different things that have helped me in a variety of different ways. And sometimes I just add to the to those things, like with my dietary and my supplement stuff. For the most part, I've just added to. I haven't really taken anything away from that. I haven't really had to make any adjustments where I remove anything, but I'm continually adding as I find things that help even more. But other things that were necessary necessary for me at a certain point, I don't really need to do now. I don't really do a whole lot of positive affirmation stuff now because it's just not something I need as much. Because I got to a point where I stopped shitting on myself constantly. I got to a point where I would no longer let myself be abusive to me. And I would stop myself from doing that. And I had to step in as, you know, as almost as a separate person. If I was being down on myself and saying horrible things to myself, I would have to step in as like a, in my mind, as another voice, almost like a different individual coming in and being like, no, you are not allowed to abuse. You're not allowed to do that. So that's where I started at. And then I did go to more positive affirmations where I consciously made an effort to see positive things in myself. And that was really helpful. And now I'm at a point where I just don't need to make that a daily practice. It's not something I need to do regularly. 
so a lot of the coping mechanisms that I have as far as self-talk have changed because I've changed and I've grown and what I needed before is not what I need now. What worked for me before is not what, what works for me now. So this is something that will follow you throughout the course of your life. You will always be growing. You will always be changing. And that is a beautiful and wonderful thing. And when you are in crisis, even though it's hard and it sucks and I get it. And the last thing that you want to do is work on improving yourself when everything feels like shit around you and it feels like your life is falling apart. The last thing you want to do is work on yourself, but try to use those times as an opportunity to make changes. I mean, when you're doing well, by all means, make changes too. But when you are in crisis, it's especially important for you to start making these shifts, even if it's a small step. Even if it's just taking your self-talk from, I am a dumpster fire of a person, to being like, no, I'm not a dumpster fire of a person. I just forgot to do that thing. Or I just happened to spill coffee grinds everywhere. Or I forgot my phone at home. You don't have to be like, no, you're a wonderful person and don't be like that to yourself. And you know, they, you don't have to go from I'm an asshole to no, I am wonderful and amazing, but just get to a point at least to be like, no, I'm not an asshole. I'm just a normal person. Like you need to have more reasonable expectations. Try to be logical about it. Make it something that happens slowly over time and be willing to adapt and adjust as time goes on and your needs change and, and you you know, you have to develop new, new coping mechanisms also based on, you know, the people that come into your life as well. And your, you know, your job or what era of your life you're in, whether you're 20 or whether you're 60 or whatever, all of those things contribute to the changes that you'll need to make and the adjustments that you'll need to make because your stressors will be different. You'll be different. The people that you are, that are around you will be different. Just always be willing to continue growing and make the most of challenging situations to make even small adjustments, small improvements towards living a healthier life and being kinder to yourself. That's such a big thing. Please be kinder to yourself. No matter what adjustments you're making and what improvements you're making, what growth you're going through, always be working towards at the very least to be kinder and more gentle with yourself and more understanding of where you're at at that time. Yes, very true. You got to keep working. You got to keep growing. You got to keep adjusting. And of course, we always want you to keep listening. <laughs> so we're going to wrap up for today, but we definitely encourage you to tune in so you can catch our next episode. All right. Yes, guys, please do keep listening. And you can also follow us on Instagram and on Twitter and Facebook. All of those platforms, it's either going to be different functional or diff underscore functional. Please follow us on all of those things. And while you're here and you're listening, if you could give us a like and a follow, if you could subscribe to the channel and you know, leave us a review, hopefully a nice one. But, but yeah, so keep listening and just remember guys that different doesn't mean defective. Mm -hmm.